Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring, fascinating women who are navigating aging with class and sass. I'm your host, Nicole Christina. Hey everyone, I am so grateful for all of the downloads, and I'd love a rating on iTunes and a comment. And please subscribe. It helps the show's rating so other people can find it and learn how to age well. And if you are loving the podcast, why not check out the companion online course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. You can access it through my website, NicoleChristina.com forward slash Zestful Aging. It's based on the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and I'm really proud of how it's turned out. Well, I've got my coffee in my hand and my trusty dog Sparky beside me, so let's begin. Today, we are going to be speaking with Angela Littleford, who will be presenting her work at the International Federation of Aging in Toronto next month, and she has been incredibly patient with my tech and time change challenges. Angela specializes in developing services for older people at Helping Hand Aged Care in South Australia. And the programming includes community-based packages of care and support for people with disabilities and mental health issues, restorative and transitional care, and dementia care. Programming at Helping Hound is developed with an emphasis on physical and mental health, mind and body, and we're going to talk a little bit about why South Australia has a history of holistic health care for seniors. Welcome, Angela. <laughs> Thank you. Um, would you mind starting off uh, educating us a little bit about why South Australia has this legacy of working with the whole self, the whole person? Um, really, it began in the 1970s when we had um, Gough Whitlam as the Prime Minister of Australia. And he was very progressive for his time, understanding what the World Health Organisation has taught us over and over again, the importance of not just the absence of physical disease, but the elements of social, emotional, spiritual and cultural well-being. And particularly for our Aboriginal community, cultural well-being is, is really critical. So what he did is he put out a number of funding programs that meant we could start um, primary healthcare centres in the community. They were called community health organisations and they were often co-located with key services such as schools, recreational facilities, um, housing trust um, public housing housing units um, and you meant what happened was you got a very holistic approach to care so you had GPs as part of the core 
care services team, if you like, you had your full range of allied health professionals. But what was a bit different is we had bilingual, bicultural workers, we had youth workers and community development officers. And their job was to work with community groups, empowering them to take the lead on establishing different programs in the community and supporting often people on a low income as well. So I've worked in these primary healthcare centres um, in both South Australia and New South Wales. And New South Wales service provision was very much still in that biomedical landscape holistic from a biomedical psychosocial perspective, but not really encompassing the social, the local community relations, um, you know, building that capacity in the community. And so unfortunately, over time, we have lost a lot of those programs. We also had great leaders like Fran Baum. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she is an amazing person who has really inspired us in terms of public health. And Michael Marmot was a key player for us in um, late 90s, early 2000. So we've always had this very, let's promote health and wellbeing first and let's mm -hmm. prevent disease second. And that health and wellbeing, if your community isn't healthy, then the chances are you're probably not healthy mm. either. Wow. I mean, there's so many parts of that that, uh, that are fascinating to me. When you say bilingual, do you mean um, English and Aboriginal language? Um, it could be. We had an Aboriginal health team who were bilingual from that perspective, obviously multilingual in many cases, but also we had Chinese, Vietnamese, bilingual bicultural workers who spoke uh, the various dialects of Chinese and Vietnamese in particular because we had a lot of immigrants from those area areas and then later in my time at Parks um, Community Centre where I used to work we had a lot of people from Somalia um, and Africa during the time that there was those terrible um, you know uh, terrible fighting between uh, civil, community. civil wars yeah I see, I yeah. see. what are the kinds of things that people might bring um, as health challenges that a middle-class white person doesn't, isn't familiar with or, or, or maybe uh, ignorant about? What are the kind of challenges yeah. that might be different? I think it's that old adage of, you know, make healthy choices, easy choices. And the things we do each day contribute to our overall health and well-being. So, for example, someone on a lower income may be very challenged to get fresh fruit and vegetables on the table just because they are so expensive. Um, and the people in those um, positions may not have transport to get to shops. Um, and life can become very... Uh, insular because often the scenario will be a single person with a, a single parent with a number of children and managing all the issues with children uh, children's um, development and their needs so for example one of the things we did at parts we supported local football teams and what we did is we provided the kit to the kids so that they could play football because buying a kit of sports where is around $200 and often that's just beyond people's means. So those, you know, physical access to physical activity, access to healthy and good choices in foods. We know um, in part of our, some of our um, APY lands, a can of Coke is often cheaper than a bottle of water. 
Mm-hmm. So those mm-hmm. price differentials don't make healthy choices easy choices. Mm-hmm. And probably tastes a lot better to kids yeah, than water, right. I suspect. <laughs> that's I right. suspect. So you are taking such a, a sort of a meta kind of view, like this isn't about, um, you know, taking your medicine necessarily or... Um, making sure you go to your doctor regularly, um, that that's such a small piece of this. You are really talking about these uh, huge, a huge look at what makes people well, just, just sort of from the ground up, you're asking very different kinds of questions. Absolutely. And I, in a previous role, I worked in health for many years before I had the privilege of joining aged care. And I was the director for health promotion for South Australia. So I guess that gave me a lot of that much broader perspective that I've been able to bring in to my work now in in aged care. And and I was lucky to land in an organisation like Helping Hand, who has very much embraced the concept of ageing in place and creating communities rather than talking about nursing homes and you know in-home care we always are talking about how we are enabling and facilitating people to live their best life really that's our job mm-hmm. we're the, mm-hmm. the helpers of that and our our slogan is our passion is your passion mm-hmm. I mean, it almost has this existential feel of what makes life worth living (laughs) to begin with. Yes. But we all know what makes life worth living. It's um, feeling a sense of worth, having a sense of purpose, feeling connected to a community, Mm. being able to love and be loved. It's all those things. And to be able, able to express our individualism and... A lot of our work, again, around um, embracing the LGBTQ community mm-hmm. has been about going to them and saying, look, what, are we need? what don't we know? What are we doing that might be a barrier to you participating in our communities? And so, again, um, just flipping the turnaround. Because so people know the answer. Mm-hmm. We just mm-hmm. have to listen. So you're, there the, so you're saying you're the experts. You tell me. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. So... Where do you see Helping Hand in terms of if we were going to rate organizations that have the job of helping seniors be healthy? If we look at the world, where do you see Helping Hand in terms of the spectrum of being progressive? Um, Look, it's so hard to compare ourselves to others because I haven't walked around other facilities or seen what they're doing. I think there's a lot of pockets of amazing practice around the world that we can all learn from. Um, But the kind of things that we get really excited about are the opportunities to to build socialisation opportunities and to build food choices. So, for example, for morning tea, we have 14 different choices of what you might like to eat. (laughs) <laughs> in age and in aged care, a lot of people have one choice. You have the crummy, the crummy biscuit, or you have nothing. That's I just see. it's it's from the simplest thing. We we 
in, in Australia, we are going through consumer-directed care. And that, so in home care packages, you have a package of money. And in the old days, the nurse would go out, assess your needs and tell you, right, love, you need X, Y, Z. Now we go very respectfully to people and say, okay, tell me about your life. Tell me the things that you love to do. Okay, how can we help you do that? Now that may be very mm -hmm. basic from, you know, helping people with ADLs, grooming, showering, etc., transport, um, connecting mm -hmm. to social groups. There's a whole raft of things that we can be doing. And it's interesting because we, because I've come from health, I see our current wellness and reablement program, which is what I'm talking about at the conference, actually starting to evolve into what you would know as Stanford's chronic disease self-management model. Mm -hmm. Because we, we are mm -hmm. working with seniors and giving them basic information about how to stay healthier through the lens of all of our allied health and nursing and particularly exercise physiology is very big here now. Um, and then what we're saying to them is, right, give us some feedback. How was that session for you? And the people that are participating, we're up to our third round now, they're saying, I, I want to know more. You've given me a taste of how I can keep myself healthier, but what else can I do? Or they're coming back and saying, look, that was fantastic, but I've got diabetes. Is there something in particular I should be more aware of than other people because of this chronic condition I've got? So they're taking ownership of it and not just passively saying, doctor, give me my medicines. No, no, they're not. And mm -hmm. I actually, um, you know, older people are very respectful of medicine, but they also do, once they have information, they're very excited to be a partner in, in that biomedical model. Mm -hmm. And we have, some, just, yeah. we have some great GPs that really embrace the same philosophy we do, and we're just getting fantastic results with that. Mm. You know, it's, it's just so heartwarming and just brings tears to my eyes the story you told about the biscuits which is basic respect and you sort of wonder how did we get so lost yeah as a world i mean you know and the u.s i'm sure is one of the worst offenders and i wonder like where did we go wrong and how did we think that this was a good way to do programming and you're bringing this back to basic human need absolutely it's so basic and it's so what everybody wants is to feel like you know and you said this earlier somebody of value someone who has an opinion that's actually worth being listened to and someone you know who deserves to have a choice of what kind of tea and biscuits they might like that they or, don't have yeah. to take the crumbs well or a piece of fruit so you know they're there are a lot of choices that we assume for people when we should be giving that choice back to them. Mm -hmm. mm. Just quickly, I, I, one of the other things yeah. we really like, just on the food theme, because we are doing a lot of, think, we think a lot about food and dining experiences because it is an area that we get a lot of feedback around in our um, aged care communities. And uh, one of the initiatives one of our sites has started is she's calling it the chef's table. And every month they get five residents from across the site who may be a little bit socially isolated or new to the community, so they may not have made some friends yet. And they sit down with the chef and they have a three-course meal, trialling new recipes that might then appear on the menu. 
in the latter month. Oh, yeah. And that is just having such a powerful thing because food is so important in our culture. It's a time we come together often to celebrate, to communicate, to share. There's so many elements of humanism in that. And then to then say to people, okay, what do you think? And, and those thoughts are absolutely taken on board and we translate that into t changes in the menu. Oh it's a small goodness. thing, it's such a small thing, but people value it so much. I can, I can just imagine. Now, you mentioned that you have some immigrant populations in South Australia. Yes. And how does that work in terms of their feedback about what foods they love? Do they also... Uh, uh, bring their their cultural foods um is is there some involvement in that in your programming as well yeah we do um and we find often um some of our italian community really appreciate um from the ground to the plate so there's a lot of gardening programs that run where they grow their own fresh herbs and vegetables and then have the opportunity um, to prepare that into a meal as well. Um, and where we are demographically, probably Italian, Greece, a lot of European um, immigrants in this area and as much as possible, particularly in our home-based services, if people want a, uh, a, a carer to speak their language, we work with other organisations to source people that are bilingual. So if they speak Italian um, or Greek, because our staff tend to have more of um, the Asian languages, which works if we're catering to, to more of that Asian community. Um, in our community program, we have a lot of, uh, we have a Vietnamese club and a Chinese club that come together and they, uh, around food, around a lunchtime meal, which often can become the main meal in an olden person's day. Um, and they prepare culturally their food. And also, again, it's a huge opportunity for socialisation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you have a particular part of, these programs that is most near and dear to your heart? Um, probably the one I'm really excited about is um, through our healthcare services team, we offer um, a program where we get people just to answer 10 quick questions and the answers are colour coded to then tell you what you might need from our um, health and wellness program. So we have a variety of them. Um, and so we, we say, if you get a series of question answers that tell you, you would be suited to something around your well-being. So you, that's strengthening your foundation. So you're pretty well, but you might just need some general health information. Restorative, that's when you might need to have more information about how you restore and adapt. So if you've had a major change in your health or you've perhaps got COPD and your respiratory function is just decreasing, diminishing, how can we help you do breath support and breath conservation, how, how you go about your day. And then there's reablement and there that's often when people have either had a, a acute health crisis of any kind, it couldn't it may not have left them with a long-term disability as per a stroke, but it could just be that they were hospitalised and therefore lost their function, functionality 
and our aim is to get people back to their pre-morbid functionality. So mm-hmm. I really love the way that we're rolling that program out and, and the way the community is receiving it as well. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I'm really passionate about is dementia in that I think we have for too long accept dementia as, you know, you've got dementia, there's nothing you can do. But there are a lot of studies showing now that therapies we may have used, um, we, we do use for people who've had strokes, can actually maintain the function in people with dementia at certain mm-hmm. levels. Physical activity is having an incredible, um, we, we see this now because we, we're running a lot of exercise programs now, and we are just seeing amazing results with people giving them um, that really targeted, like strength and balanced for falls prevention, but also daily physical activity for just overall reablement. It's very powerful. And what kind of exercises might you offer them? Well, look, I, the, the story I love to share is we had a gentleman who was nonverbal. Um, he was in one of the secure areas, in a dementia-specific area, and he was in a wheelchair. And uh, they started by getting getting him to place his hand on his thigh and move his hand to the side of the chair and just repeat that, you know, three times a day, 20 reps each, whatever that paradigm they had. He then went on to, we have these little mobile uh, pedal devices that you just can sit, you can sit on on a wheelchair and you can set it up so that person can just sit and pedal. Mm -hmm. That gentleman today is now not using a wheelchair. He is mobilising and he is communicating. And his oh transformation. Oh, goodness. I know. He really, he really came out. So I'm not saying everyone can achieve those, aim, those outcomes, but everyone can benefit from therapy, I think. You know, physical activity, looking at your nutrition, thinking about the behaviours that are making you well. And we know that sitting, what is it saying? Sitting is the new smoking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, right. the, it's the same for all of us. We need to move our bodies. We were designed to move. Mm-hmm. And our Arthritis Foundation for many years has, has had a slogan, move it or lose it. And it's true. Mm-hmm. you got to keep moving mm-hmm. those joints. Absolutely. Yep. So how much of your position is... Um, about influencing policy, um, is that a role that you play as well as trying to teach other jurisdictions or states or countries uh, how to do this um, and how to help people maintain health? Um, look, Helping Hand as an organisation, not necessarily me personally, but you know I'm part of the team. Um, we do have a, a strong voice in the research space in Australia. We're part of collaboratives that focus on improving care for people with dementia. And we're lucky to have a really strong research and development arm at Helping Hand. So we have over a thousand students come through Helping Hand every year. Mm-hmm. So in my division, um, metropolitan division between community services and residential, there are a thousand staff, and oh we have that goodness. number again, oh, over a thousand, and um, that number again come through as students, and they can be students, medical, allied health, but we also have environmental designers and business managers and accounting, all, all disciplines come through, and they they give their expertise to to what uh, the programs we provide so for example 
we had some um, architectural students come in and they looked at the local surrounds and what would be the best walking paths and did some advocacy with the local council about how we could improve the walking paths around the facility so people could safely get out and go for a walk. I hear a real willingness, though. I mean, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have never been to South Australia, and I don't know sort of the feel of it, but it sounds like there's an openness and a curiosity and an even a humility about how can we do this better? Let's let's just uh, try to think outside the box. Let's try to use our imaginations and let's try to figure out something that maybe no one's ever done before, but it sounds like there's a willingness. Yeah. That, there, is, that, is that accurate? Yeah, you, you're right because the Commonwealth Government actually gave South Australia something called the Innovation Hub and that's a group of um, eight aged care providers and we're one of them who were recognised nationally as, as being in this innovative best care space. Um, and we do a lot of uh, collaboration between each other. People are open to sharing ideas. And it also comes with the testimony. Out, we've had the privilege of having the same CEO for 28 years. And so he has had, and he was the first person in Australia to get funding from the federal government to to instill ageing in place. So what used to happen is if you were old and you went into residential aged care and you were low care, when you became high care, you had to move facilities. Mm-hmm. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they used to do that. Whereas Ian said, well, Ian Hardy is his name. Ian said, well, why would we do that? Why don't we just let people stay where they are and we'll adapt the services around them? And that's what we did. Mm-hmm. And now we have across Australia, ageing in place. So, yeah, I think mm-hmm. it's a combination of South Australia. We're a bit of a can-do state. We like to, um, and we're very lucky to have some thought leaders that really mm-hmm. inspire us every day. Um, mm-hmm. But also, yeah, we are very much open to improving all the time. Mm-hmm. Hello, Zestful Agers. A short intermission to thank you for the incredible amount of downloads. I love creating this podcast, and it's so satisfying to know that you are enjoying it too. Creating and hosting Zestful Aging has been a blast, but it does require a lot of time and resources to deliver a high-quality interview to you every week. So I've signed up with Patreon, which is kind of like Kickstarter, but for ongoing artistic projects. Unlike Kickstarter, the donations are recurrent and the amount is usually smaller. When you become a patron of Zestful Aging, you will receive special benefits like behind the scenes info, a place to communicate with other listeners as well as other patron-only bonuses. These funds will be used to make equipment upgrades, particularly for mobile interviewing, and to travel to interview guests like to New York City to interview participants in the Diversity Fashion Show. I also need to hire a professional editor. So please go to patreon.com 
forward slash Zestful Aging and make a small but vital donation. Thank you for contributing to the ongoing success of Zestful Aging, and I can't wait to bring you more juicy, inspiring interviews. Now back to the show. Mm. What are the challenges that you've had to face as, you know, you the passion is so clear in your voice. What are the things that you wish were different or are, are, are the tougher part of your day? Um, I think South Australia had, uh, Australia had a very uh, large um, inquiry in, into aged care services. And the blueprint back then was talking a lot about palliative care belonging in the aged care space. And unfortunately, what we've seen is health have said, okay, we're going to not do as much palliative care, aged care, you can do that. But the resources haven't come with it. So we really struggle with our current funding tool that gives us a, a daily fee to care for anyone. It's called the ACFI. Um, and that really isn't designed to capture the best care we would like to provide in palliative care. Because I think palliative care is a very special discipline and we should get it right. Mm-hmm. And I'm really keen to read that book you. I wrote down the reference oh, you Catherine gave me. Oh, Catherine Mannix, I just yes. finished it. Oh, I think you'll really love it. It's, yeah. That's that's. It's just about her experiences with different patients, what it's like. It's such a well done book. I think you'll love that. Yeah. Uh huh. So I see. So that's the part. In my understanding correctly, that there's resources, and the question is, how do we divide up these resources? And that are you saying that palliative care sometimes doesn't get enough to do what they might do um, uh, well, differently or better? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically, funding for palliation still goes to health. But the reality is aged care is doing palliative care and the funding doesn't follow that activity to date. Mm-hmm. I hope mm-hmm. it will because uh, we want to keep getting better. We, If people choose to die at home and it, our facilities are people's homes, it's their community if that's where they choose to pass. Um, and we mm-hmm. have all the facilities pe- families can stay over. Uh, we do a lot of amenity and environment. We think a lot about you know access to outdoor spaces, Families being able to make a cup of tea, have their own private lounge room area, really try and think all of the Mm. different facets, Mm. how we can be respectful around someone's passing, but also very uh, supportive as much as that family, particular family want. It just occurred to me that some of what you have for, for people, their families, might be uh, more attentive and more respectful than what they've experienced in their younger lives. Could well be, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds like you've covered so many of the bases. Yeah, yeah we do. And, and mm-hmm. yes, it, it's a very interesting world when we work with human beings. They're, they're many shades of grey and nothing is ever black and white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And what will you be presenting uh, on uh, in the conference in August? And really around our continuum of care. So very much our <clears throat> probably primary or secondary healthcare approach right through to palliation uh, and how we work with people across all those five domains of 
physical, social, emotional, spiritual, cultural well-being um, to keep people as healthy as they can so they can live the best life that they can. Mm-hmm. And is your experience when you present your work that people will come, delegates from other countries, and want to collaborate with you and learn from your uh, from helping hand? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. I've had the privilege of um, collaborating uh, with some people in the United States, um, and I'm in the process of finishing my PhD, so that keeps me very much in touch with some of the key thinkers around the world. So, yeah, it's it, we are always looking for, for how we can partner and how we can learn from each other. And we have a lot of international visitors to our facilities to see how we, how we run business. Mm-hmm. How do you keep yourself from running out of uh, steam yourself? Because it, it sounds like it, it, it's a big job and it's an important job and I can imagine one might get pretty tired after a while. <laughs> I work with a great team. Of course, no one person mm. does this this work. So I have a, a group of um, um, 12 or so managers that report to me. Um, and the, the thing that keeps me fired up is that as a general manager, I'm not on the floor day to day or out in the community day to day, but I always try to find time to really connect with the people we serve. And that's Mm -hmm. what lights my fire. Mm -hmm. I love the stories. I love people sharing information back to me. I hear a lot and often I, unfortunately, you know, hear the complaints where we haven't got it quite right. But my commitment to people who give us that feedback is I genuinely want to learn and make it better so this doesn't happen again. And that, that is just, mm-hmm. I, you have to be genuine about that. that. That is something that is very much instilled for me that I think it's a privilege to work with older people and I think they deserve the best we can give them. Mm-hmm. So that it's, it's just part of my core. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. It, it, it just sounds magnificent and coming from uh, a country where, you know, where if you uh, know Ashton Applewhite, she's a big advocate for um, aging with respect and an anti-ageist um, advocate and, and really pointing out the United States is the worst place to get older because of the invisibility and, you know, the people are seen as not valuable anymore and not useful and so it sounds like we could really do a lot of learning from you know your orientation and your mindset it's just so lovely to hear people doing it well and people you know and that you have such a commitment it's it's really um there's been so much bad news you know and Mm. it's 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 been hard to live here and it's just so nice to hear that there are really good positive things happening elsewhere it makes me hopeful (laughs) you do have some (laughs) i um i visited the home nurses of new york um, about Mm -hmm. five six years ago and we had the privilege to go to johns hopkins and look at some Mm. of your elder care models and they were very impressive so i think like us you had you may have pockets of great Mm -hmm. practice Mm -hmm. it's just getting that everywhere that's the mm-hmm. challenge. I, I think you're right. And there's, you know, you mentioned uh, Stanford and 
longevity project and all of that. So people are working on it, but the overall cultural uh, sort of viewpoint needs needs quite a bit of work. Sure. So thank you so much for sharing your work with us and and the work of Helping Hand. It really just was a pleasure to to hear about your project and your your excitement about it. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. I love to hear from my listeners, so send me an email at nicolechristina.com and tell me what you'd like to hear more about. I would also greatly appreciate if you could hop on iTunes and rate the show. Ratings help other people find the podcast so I can share all these good juicy interviews with others. I would also invite you to become a patron of the Zestful Aging Podcast. Hop on over to patreon.com forward slash Zestful Aging and consider making a small donation. You will be eligible for insider-only goodies and behind-the-scenes information, and it'll help you feel good knowing that you're contributing to the Zestful Aging Podcast. I'll look forward to sharing more juicy interviews next week on Zestful Aging.